Good morning, friends. As someone who had the privilege to go on the pilgrimage to Egypt, uh, I am excited to hear about the testimonies uh, and see the pictures today at the Lunch and Learn in Heritage Hall following the 11 o'clock service. Thank you uh, to Ruth for her leadership of that trip, uh, as well as Dr. McDonald, who, uh, uh, who gave me the blessing to go on that trip and, and have that wonderful experience. Friends, on this morning, I invite us into a posture of prayer. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak through us. Spirit of the living God, speak in spite of us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray, amen. This morning's gospel lesson is found in the gospel of John. We've been exploring the gospel of John throughout the season of Lent and this season of Eastertide. And we begin at verses 15, ending at verses 19. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know, and I'm uh, sorry, I missed a key phrase there. Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, uh, I apologize. <laughs> Let me start that part again. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now that I got that scripture reading right, I hope that it is a familiar passage to you. Uh, it is one that has been a, a, a big blessing for many of the Kirk who meet on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. You like how I slid that in there, right? Uh, you are welcome to attend. Uh, in the summer months, we have the privilege of meeting around a fire. And it is around that fire during the pandemic when no one could come inside the building that the fire for men of the Kirk's Bible study was consecrated with this exact scripture of Jesus having breakfast with his disciples around a fire. 
And of course, the parallels to Peter sitting around a courtyard fire earlier in the story is, of course, not to be missed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the inspiration for today's title. In 1956, a volume of short biographies describing acts of bravery by eight U.S. senators was published by then-Senator John F. Kennedy titled Profiles in Courage. In 1990, the first of the Profile in Courage Awards uh, was given and is, I quote, given to individuals who, by acting in accord with their conscience, risked their careers or lives by pursuing a larger vision in opposition to popular opinion or pressure from constituents or other local interests. Courage has long been lauded as a necessary virtue or the greatest of them. Winston Churchill declared in paraphrasing Dr. Johnson, courage is rightly esteemed the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. What is courage? Considered a virtue, that is, a trait of excellence that is in alignment with the sense of the moral order for the greater good of the community, courage is neither brashness nor compulsive behavior. I fear nothing. Bring the obstacles my way. But it is also not its opposite, cowardice, paralysis by analysis, or stepping back and out when things get hard. Instead, courage is facing fear for the greater purpose of a greater good in confronting a problem or crisis because it is the right thing to do and without which one would be out of alignment with one's deepest axiomatic principles or those of the moral order. Throughout the Gospels, we are given an in-depth masterclass on courage. Jesus will face rejection by family members in his own hometown. Jesus will anger the local synagogue and the high-ranking religious leaders throughout the texts. Jesus will upset Roman officials. In fact, Jesus somehow is able to upset every faction, every type of people who follow him. Jews and Gentiles, Roman and Jewish leaders, pro-Roman tax collectors, and anti-Roman zealots, men and women, Sadducees, scribes, and Pharisees, all of them offended. Just when you think Jesus might pick a side, he manages to unite groups who don't even like each other, like the Sadducees, scribes, and Pharisees, against him. Each groups that had significant issues with one another. No wonder he is finally betrayed, abandoned, arrested, and crucified. But why? Courage. That excellent trait of facing the very thing you fear because there's a greater purpose at work, something worth fighting for because it is the right thing to do. Sure, Jesus as God knew what was coming, but Jesus as man certainly was not welcoming the hour of his death. This hour he consistently refers to in the Gospel of John, his death knowing that he is slowly confronting systems of death disorder, division, and destruction with courage. And now he meets Peter by the fire. Peter, a leader in training under Jesus' tutelage, he seems considered a future leader of the, of the disciples throughout the gospel narrative. His stumbling moments often become teachable moments. 
Peter often speaks first, or his words are certainly the most recorded of any of the disciples. Jesus addresses him directly, and these moments are often most climactic, such as when Peter declares, I will never abandon you, or you are the Messiah, the Son of God, or to whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. Or when Jesus says to the disciples in a poetic use of Peter's name, upon this rock, I shall build my church. But here we find not the Peter upon which the church will be built. The once and future leader failed. Having breakfast with Jesus, probably silent because of his shame, Because as a leader, when it counted amid the crisis, Peter abandoned Jesus at his most critical hour, denied him, and when confronted, he lied. Running away in cowardice and shame, Peter doesn't quite believe even the women that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, in fairness, would any of us be any different? I mean, the disciples, Peter in particular, have been through it. For three years, the movement of Jesus has traveled together, facing physical storms on the Sea of Galilee, as well as socio-political ones on the streets. They have suffered hunger and accusations, threats in a variety of cities, constantly on the move, wondering what's next. And then their best friend, their their leader, this mysterious son of God fulfilling the role of Messiah who will liberate them finally from Roman oppression and offer a new vision for the world was killed and they did nothing to stop it. What could they have done? But I denied him, Peter thinks, when I said I would never deny him or abandon him, I did just that. Peter and the disciples only know that Jesus' body is missing, perhaps taken from the tomb, and that there are reports of sightings. And now the miracle of fishing that precedes this story and we heard about last week, all of these experiences, all of these feelings and thoughts collide in this one moment at breakfast. The regret the nostalgia, the teachings, the laughs, the tensions, the crises, the miracle, and the shame. And here's where I want to pause. Because you see, I think it took courage for Peter to sit there with Jesus. Think about it. To go to the place of your deepest shame, exactly where you messed up, and to be present to that moment. Listen to some of these lines from Scott Erickson's book, Say Yes, Discover the Surprising Life Beyond the Death of a Dream, when he's writing about this very passage. He says, your most embarrassing moment is not the story you tell others about. That's just the embarrassment you're willing to show others. Your most embarrassing moment is the moment you don't ever bring up the one you keep a secret. Most likely a moment you wouldn't mind erasing from your story. We all have these moments. Moments where because of lack of information, social pressures, limited options, or good old fashioned lack of self-control, we make choices 
statements or decisions in, high, in hindsight that are disappointing. What we're talking about is humiliation, the painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity that unexpectedly happens in front of others. Sometimes it's confronting the narrative of whether we're even the good person in this story. He goes on. After a miraculous catch followed by, he calls it, holy fish tacos on the beach, the risen one takes Peter aside and asks him three times if he loves him. The text doesn't say very much about the breakfast conversation except that no one was willing to ask the risen one who he was, which I guess is another way of saying we've been through some history together and we're not sure how to talk about it. I imagine the tension in that meal was like the tension we've all experienced in a meal where there is something deeper that needs to be brought to the surface. But because of embarrassing or humiliating circumstances, it's just easier to focus on the food. But Jesus shows his great leadership in not humiliating Peter further in that moment, but inviting him to courage, the courage of vulnerability. Dr. Brene Brown has written much about vulnerability and courage. She writes, vulnerability is our most accurate way to measure courage. We actually do this as researchers. We can measure how brave you are by how vulnerable you're willing to be. Peter's got nothing he can even hide from Jesus. Peter could have run away once again from that fire and from that shame. Peter could have acted like nothing had happened. Peter could have tried to defend himself, maybe apologize profusely, maybe a speech in hand, much like the prodigal son. But Peter just sits there in silence. He knows what he's done. As uncomfortable as it might be, he sits in that vulnerability knowing he has failed. Failed exactly when it counted. But you see, I think vulnerability teaches us a great lesson. A great lesson, especially in our time. You see, when Kennedy wrote the book I referenced earlier that would later launch his presidency, he was responding to a time of crisis with rising tensions with the Soviet Union and the threat of nuclear war, a fast-changing society with fast-changing technology and significant difference in how different people experience the quote-unquote golden age of America and the American dream. The crisis in our time is much the same, but perhaps on a greater scale. There is still the threat of nuclear war hanging in the air. Our world is restless with war in Ukraine, Sudan, and elsewhere. We are a house divided against itself. The rhetoric in traditional media and social media can be outright cruel and outright false. Tragic events like shootings around our country become moments for political posturing and advocacy for our ideologies rather than opportunities to come together and to grieve. We are facing and will continue to face economic challenges, political division, and social upheaval. It all seems so overwhelming. 
For all the things the pandemic did, it certainly exposed the cracks in our institutions, the crises in our leadership. All of it is enough for us to give up or give in to the narrative and to the rhetoric, to pick a faction and fight for it at all costs. We're waiting. We're waiting for something to give us meaning and purpose. We don't know exactly what we're angry about. We just want something to be angry about. We're not sure exactly why we're always fighting, but we want something to be fighting about. But Kennedy's words at his inaugural address still are still applicable today. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or to paraphrase, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Ask not what God can do for you, but what you can do for God. Not in your own strength, but equipped by God's grace. You see, Jesus will invite Peter, not in some ways to make up for all the ways he failed, but that out of his failure, he might be propelled forward to make a difference in his world. Will you feed my sheep? Will you care and tend for my lambs? Will you go out there even when you have failed? Let it not paralyze you. Let it not stop you. Let it not steal from you the vocation I have given. There is still work to do in our world. As many of you have attended house meetings with Dr. McDonald to envision and dream what this church could be, there's still work to be done here in this church. There's still work to be done in our own neighborhoods and in our own lives. Perhaps we haven't all done our very best to make this country a better place to lead our families, to love our friends and neighbors, to help make Kirk in the Hills a meaningful ministry in our community. Perhaps we have sometimes gotten caught up in the factions and in the rhetoric, but will we have the courage, that is the vulnerability, to face the places we have failed, to face the things that divide us, to face the things that hurt to be present and show up anyway. This is the invitation of Jesus. And I leave you with something that reminds me of this invitation because the invitation to love Jesus is the invitation to follow Jesus. And the invitation to follow Jesus is to take care of and feed his lambs, his sheep. We are still called to the work ahead of us. And in this poem titled, The Paradoxical Commandments, that once hung on the wall of Mother Teresa's children's home in Calcutta, India, written by Dr. Keith, he says this, a reminder I think we all need to hear today. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. 
The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. This is Jesus' invitation. Drawing near to us in the place of our shame and humiliation, our embarrassing moments, our failures. Failures aside, I have an assignment for you, Jesus says. This is another critical hour at another critical juncture. This is, as Dr. King described, the fierce urgency of now. Do you love me, Jesus asks? Then follow me. And in following me, feed a people, feed my children hungry for bread and for justice. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.